0: turn in our Bibles this morning to the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and we are going to read verses 1 to 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes and of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews continues the theme of the greater priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which began in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we learned that Christ is a greater priest than Melchizedek, In chapter 8, we saw that in administrating a better covenant, Christ is superior to Aaron in his ministry. Here in chapter 9, the writer impresses on his readers the truth that as the great high priest, Christ ministers in a greater sanctuary and offers a better sacrifice. In all of 28 verses, this is the thrust of the writer. And once again, keep in mind, as we have stated in previous studies, as the, the recipients were Jewish Christians who, on account of intense persecution for their faith in Christ, they were on the verge of abandoning their commitment to Christ. They were tempted to return to Judaism, that whole religious system of the Old Testament, as codified. In the Mosaic Law. Some of them were either excommunicated or were facing excommunication uh, from the temple services and its privileges, an experience that would have been for them a most horrible, painful, humiliating one at that. Against that backdrop, the author, here in the book of Hebrews, and in particular here in chapter 9, intends to demonstrate to them that what they have in Christ, what they have in Christ, way supersedes all the rituals, all the institutions of the Mosaic covenant. That there's a vast qualitative difference between the old and new covenant system of worship, between the salvation that's merely typified by the blood of animals and that salvation which was accomplished once and for all by our Lord Jesus Christ. Right it begins in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of witness. And right away here in verse 1, we are confronted with this truth that the worship of God, the true worship of God, is never left to man's initiative, it's never left to his inventiveness, it's never left to his ingenuity. Rather, the true worship of God is regulated by God himself. So that we could rightly say this, that God, when it comes to worship, the worship of the true and living God, the true and proper worship of God is That the agenda for true and proper worship is set by none other than God himself. You see, many today do not like the idea of rules and regulations. We actually live in a culture that is not only lawless but despises any notion of rules and regulations. And this attitude carries over even into the church because when it comes to worship, there are people, my friends, who are more in for creativity and innovativeness so as to make worship, as they say, more appealing, more attractive to the unconverted. And So there's a big push today for what is known as seeker-sensitive worship. But I'd like for us to be reminded of the fact that as far as God is concerned when it comes to the matter of true worship, when it comes to this business of worshiping God, the only seeker we need to be sensitive of is God himself. For the word of God declares in John chapter 4 verse 23, here's what God himself says in his word, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So having touched on this matter of what he calls regulations for worship, incidentally, we in our Reformed tradition, we talk about the regulated principle of worship. And by the way, it's not just for the Old Testament, it is for the New Testament. There is a regulative order, a regulative principle for worship in the New Testament and you say, why can we say that? First Peter chapter two, verse five, Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse fifty, make it very clear that we offer to God sacrifices acceptable to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter twelve, verse twenty-eight, therefore, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, the writer says there we are to serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. And so he talks about this matter of worship being regulated under the Old Covenant, and in connection with those regulations was what he speaks of as an earthly place of worship. We notice it in the very first verse. He says there, now even the First Covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of worship. Holiness. This earthly place of holiness mentioned in verse 1 is clearly an allusion to the tabernacle God had instructed Moses to build back in the time of Israel's journey in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 25, verses 27 describe in detail how the tabernacle was to be constructed. And with a dimension of approximately 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, its actual construction is recorded in Exodus chapter 36 to 38, as well as Exodus 40. Well, what was the purpose of this tabernacle? What was the purpose of the tabernacle? Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God explicitly told Moses, he says, listen, he says that he should tell the people to make him a sanctuary so that he might dwell in their midst. You know, it has always been God's desire to dwell with man. You go back to the Garden of Eden and you see intimation of this idea in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. We are told how that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this may have been a typical day when God would come into the garden to have fellowship with Adam and Eve only that on this particular day, they did not want to have anything to do with him. In fact, they were hiding. Why? Because they had partaken of the forbidden fruit and hence they discovered they were naked. They were naked and so they were hiding from God, hiding from fellowship with God. God's desire to dwell with man was most certainly evidenced in the incarnation. In the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it, with the coming into the world of the Word made flesh, the Apostle John says this in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what is interesting to note is that the Greek word that is translated dwell there in John chapter 1 verse 14 is the very word for tabernacle. So that what John is saying here, and he's suggesting here, is this, that God, not only did God tabernacle or dwelt with ancient Israel, but our Lord Jesus Christ, over 2,000 years ago, when he came to this earth, he tabernacled among men. In other words, he pitched his tent, his tabernacle, his body, his bodily presence alongside men over 2,000 years ago. The Word of God teaches that under the New Covenant, right now, if you're a Christian, the Word of God teaches this, that God dwells not in temples made with hands. God does not dwell in a physical tabernacle at this moment. He does not dwell in a physical temple. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, says Acts chapter 7 verse 48, Acts chapter 17 verse 24. Rather, He dwells where? He dwells with His redeemed people through the Holy Spirit. He dwells with his redeemed people through his Holy Spirit and through his people, the Bible tells us that his people he deems as his temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 22. We are God's temple. And praise be to God, there is coming a day When, as the Apostle John heard in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, that it will be that the dwelling place of God will be with man. Because here's what the Apostle John says. He says this, He heard this loud voice saying from heaven, how that he will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He heard this Lord voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And you know who that tabernacle is. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So back to our point, the purpose of the tabernacle, the purpose for which God... Asked that this tabernacle be constructed was so that God might dwell in the midst of his people. And as such, the tabernacle functioned as a rallying point for the people of Israel. It served as a center for their spiritual life, their whole dealings with the Lord. It was to the tabernacle they would go with their sacrifices, with their offerings, so as to make atonement for sins. The tabernacle then was a place of forgiveness. The tabernacle was a place where Israel would go and even foreigners would go to have fellowship with the living God. Now, in verses 2 through 5 of our text, Hebrews chapter 9, the writer gives a detailed but not exhaustive description of the earthly sanctuary, the earthly tabernacle, and its furnishings. In verse 2, he refers to the first section of the tabernacle called the holy place. In verse 3, he calls attention to the second section of the tabernacle, known as the most holy place, or as it is sometimes termed, the holy of holies. He then mentions eight items, eight items of furniture that were to be found in the tabernacle. Remember now, Even by his own admission in verse 5, he's not intent on telling us everything that was in the tabernacle. But he lists eight items, and we will not necessarily go through eight of them. But the first item found in the first section known as the holy place was the lampstand. Look at verse 2, the lampstand. We learn from Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 25, verse 31, that it was made of pure gold. The lampstand consisted of seven branches turned upward, or containers facing upwards, In these oil was continually burned so as to illumine the holy place. We learn that from Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 2. As such, morning and evening, the Word of God tells us in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 3, the lamps had to be tended. The lampstand had to be tended morning and evening, so as to keep a light burning in that first section of the tabernacle known as the holy place. And then there was a table and the bread of presence. And consisting of 12 loaves, we learned that from Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5, they were so called because they were set before the presence of God. That's why they were called the bread of presence. There were 12 of them, six on either side, and they were to be set before the Lord. Every Sabbath, they were to replenish that table. They were to set before the Lord these 12 loaves. Now in verses 3 to 5, the writer takes his readers to the second section of the tabernacle known as the most holy place. So first of all, we have the holy place, and then after that, the most holy place, or holy of holies. And separating the holy place from the most holy place was a curtain. Second curtain, this dividing curtain, of course, emphatically symbolized that separation, that awful separation that exists between a holy and righteous God. And sinful man, in fact, later in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20, the writer of the Hebrews will see in the curtain Christ's flesh, his body, which was opened so as to provide believers a new and living way of entry into the holy presence of God. In the most holy place, according to be part of verse 4, there was the Ark of the Covenant. This was a huge wooden chest, Overlaid with gold, of course, it measured 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches deep. The writer reminds his readers how that it contained an urn holding the manna and Aaron's and staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Referred to elsewhere as the Ark of God, referred to as the Ark of Might, the Ark of His Might, the Holy Ark, the Ark of the Testimony, or simply the testament, the Ark of the Covenant, symbolized the presence of God in the midst of his people. You remember, even when they were crossing the Jordan, the Ark figured prominent. The Ark represented the mighty, powerful presence of God. When the Philistines saw the ark, you remember back in the book of first Samuel, they quaked, they they trembled, they they were in great fear. Why? Because the presence of God was there, symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. Also in the most holy place, if you look at verse 5, was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was actually the lid or covering for the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was a place where sin where sins were covered, as it were, and having given a description of the earth, the sanctuary or tabernacle its furnishing, the writer at the end of verse 5 makes this comment. He says this, we cannot speak in a detailed way on these things. This is in fact the second time in his address to these readers, to these people, these Jewish Christians, that he holds back from going into extensive detail on some subject matter he had begun to discuss. The first time, you remember, was back in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, where when he was speaking of Melchizedek, he says, of whom we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you are dull of hearing. Here, at this point, in dealing with the tabernacle, he says, listen, We can't go into detail. And here's the point, beloved. We're not going to have time to go into detail about the tabernacle, just like the writer of the Hebrews says. Now, we can only imagine the rich truths the writer of the Hebrews would bring out concerning the tabernacle. Not only the tabernacle, but its furniture. We we can only imagine the rich truths he would bring out by way of typology what these things represent. And the irony, beloved, is that throughout the centuries, commentators have gone ahead in their attempt to fill out the details to actually, we would say, help out the right of the Hebrews in finishing his thoughts concerning what the various items of the tabernacle and the various pieces of furniture actually mean or represent, which is purely a speculative exercise. And here we're talking about the many fanciful interpretations, the many ingenious interpretations, meanings that these commendators have assigned to the tabernacles and its furnishings, all in the name of typology. I remember years ago when I, in the early days of my Christian life, I came across a book by A.W. Pink, Gleanings in Exodus, many of you might be familiar with that book, And in that book, A.W. Pink goes on, on what I would call a wild flight in terms of imagination concerning what the various items of furniture and various parts of the tabernacle represent. Many commentators do that, and here's the point. Hardly you will find any commentator, any set of commentators, agreeing on what any one particular thing means. And what's the point there? Notice the Bible never went into the, it went into the details to give us a, 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 a catalog, a list as to what the various items represent, what the various items typify. Calvin issues a warning concerning this passage when he writes this, and and this is very much well noting. He says this quote. As nothing can satisfy curious men, the apostle cuts off every occasion for refinements unsuitable to his present purpose, and lest a longer discussion of these things should break off the thread of his argument. If, therefore, anyone should disregard the apostle's example and dwell more minutely on the subject, he would be acting unreasonably. It may further be said that to philosophize beyond just limits, which some do, is not only useless, but also dangerous. Discretion and sobriety ought to be observed, lest we seek to be wise above what God has been pleased, has been pleased to reveal. End quote. What is the point? The point is... The Bible, nowhere, goes into detail in telling us what this means and what that means and what that means and what this means. And that is what the writer is doing here. The writer is simply going over the tabernacle as the Jewish readers would have understood from their own reading of Scripture. That's what they had in their Bibles, just like you and I have in our Bibles. Just a description of the tabernacle and its furnishings, and it's just that. Perhaps we could say this, and be on the safe side, that the tabernacle, based on what we know from Scripture, we can say dogmatically was a visible representation of God's presence in the midst of his people. Secondly, we could say this, that the tabernacle in some way or another, that that is, the tabernacle and its furnishings in some way or another point to the person and work of Christ. Beyond that, we are, not, we are not at liberty to make any further comment. Now, Beginning at verse 6, all the way to verse 14, the author, we find here, presents to his readers a series of contrasts. He presents a series of contrasts between the ministry of the earthly sanctuary and its sacrificial system and the ministry of the heavenly sanctuary carried out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that he has to say in this regard is designed to establish the superiority of Christ's redemptive work, Christ's atoning work, over what his readers would see as the impressive temple with all its elaborate furnishings, with all its elaborate system of worship, with all its elaborate rituals. You know, people today are fascinated with rituals. There are people today who like the smells. They like to enter a chapel or cathedral, and they like to smell the oils. They like to hear the whistle. They like to see all the carrying on of of, of, of all the accoutrements of religion. They like to see the flowing garbs of the of the priests and so on. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, look. What we have in Jesus supersedes all the rituals of the richest, so-called richest religions of the world. So as regards this earthly sanctuary, the writer is presenting a series of contrasts. And he's showing the various ways in which the arrangement of the tabernacle and its worship was limited, limited. And the first thing he does in verses 6 and 7, he shows that as regards the ministry of the earthly sanctuary, there was restricted access to the most holy place. There was restricted access to the most holy place. First of all, there was restriction as to the one who could enter the most holy place. Notice in verse 6, whereas the priest, that is the regular priest, could minister at all times, they could minister regularly, they could in fact minister daily, In the first section known as the holy place, verse 7a, only the high priest could enter the second section known as the most holy place. So first of all, there was restriction of access with regard to the one who could enter the most holy place. Second, there was restriction as to the occasion of entry into the most holy place. Verse 7b, the high priest goes, he, sa- he tells us, but once per year. He goes once per year. And the reference here would be to the day of atonement known as Yom Kippur. We read of that in Leviticus chapter 16. The high priest enters the most holy place, he says, and not without blood, which he offers for himself, for himself, and then for the unintentional sins of the people we read there in verse 7. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 16, if we were to fill in the blanks here, according to Leviticus 16, there were four animals, four animals that were sacrificed at this time. Four animals, sacrifices, four animal sacrifices were involved in making atonement for sins. There was a bull, a bull for sin offering, There was a ram for a burnt offering. And these were to be offered by the high priest and his household. They were to be offered for the high priest and for his household. We see that in verses 3 and 6 of Leviticus chapter 16. Then for the people of Israel, there were two male goats, two male goats, that is, for a sin offering. And of course, only one of these goats was to be slain and one ram for a burnt offering. And having thoroughly cleansed himself, the priest, the priest we are told, had to bathe himself. He had to make sure that his body was washed. He was entering the presence of God, the most holy presence of God. And on top of that, he had to put on clean linen. He had to put on clean linen. He had to put on his holy attire, his vestments, And then the high priest, we are told, would enter the Holy of Holies. And as he enters the Holy of Holies, what he would be doing, he would be sprinkling blood, the blood of the slain animals, on the mercy seat. In this way, atonement was made for the sins of the priest, the high priest, and his family. And what they would do with the remaining goat, the live goat... Baba Bible tells us the high priest would lay both hands on the goat. He would confess the sins of the people over the goat. And after he confessed the sins of the people over the goat, the goat would be sent away into the wilderness, thus bearing away, as it were, the sins of the people. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 21 and 22. Quite an elaborate ceremony on the Day of Atonement. And yet for all that, the writer says, it was limited. That system was limited. The tabernacle was limited as far as entry into the most holy place was concerned because only the high priest could go in. And even though only the high priest could go in, he could only do it once per year. And he had to be very careful. We're told, in fact, it, it was such an awesome event that, you know, he, we are told that he had this bell around him. And, of course, some say the reason for the, having the bell around him, if anything should happen, if he should drop dead, then they would be able to pull him out. He, you know, that kind of thing. It was, it was a very awesome event. Moving now to the sacrificial system of the earthly sanctuary, the writer goes on then to assess the whole system in verses 9 and 10. The whole system, the whole sacrificial system, he makes his assessment of this system in verses 9 and 10. And the first thing he tells us there is that there was limited efficacy to the offerings. He suggests in verse 9b, first of all, that they were powerless to remove guilt. Those offerings, he says, were powerless to remove guilt. Here's what he says. According to this arrangement, that is the arrangement, the sacrificial system of the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle, he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. May I suggest to you the same thing obtains today? Because here's the point, that a morning like this, there are people who are filling cathedrals, cathedrals are filled with people this morning, who are going through some religious ceremony, who are saying confession to some priest, who are watching some mass take place, and what is happening, they leave just the way they enter, all the guilt is still there. Still there. And that's what the writer is saying. The writer is saying here that those systems of worship, what with all the elaborate rituals, he says, all the gifts and sacrifice offered could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The songwriter says, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Jesus Christ, the heavenly lamb, he talks about his having a nobler name than they. Jesus Christ alone, my friends, can cleanse and salve and heal the guilty conscience. Regarding the limited efficacy of these offerings, he says, secondly, in the A part of verse 10, they were predominantly ritualistic. They were predominantly ritualistic. He says there in verse 10, a they dealt only with food and drink and various washings and regulations. Rituals, rituals, rituals. In fact, daily, the priest, what he would be doing as he would be offering those sacrifices, it would be ritualistic washings, ceremonies. And he says, yet for all that, they were limited in their effectiveness, in their efficacy. And then the B part of verse 10, thirdly, they were physically oriented. They were for the body, he says. As he goes on to state in the C part of verse 30, these offerings only address the defilement of the flesh. In other words, they only took care of externals. They only took care of the externals. They never took care of the soul, the spirit. They never took care of the inside. And let me say, my friends, that salvation in Jesus Christ is not a makeover. Salvation in Jesus Christ is an inside job where God, by his Spirit, works upon the heart, regenerates the heart, changes the man, and makes him a brand new creation. There's no law that can do that. There's no ritual that can do that. There's no mass that can do that. There's no priest that can do that. It is only the redemption that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice the fourth thing he suggests, that suggests, the fourth thing he tells us, that suggests the limited efficacy of these offerings. Not only was it that they were powerless to remove guilt, predominantly ritualistic as they were, Not only were they physically oriented, but notice the C part of verse 10, they were purposely temporary. The writer says there they were imposed until the time of the Reformation. That is to say they were instituted until that time when the atoning sacrificial work of Christ would inaugurate the new covenant. It is this atoning sacrificial work of Christ that we now come to, that the writer now celebrates in verses 11 through 14. And notice, he begins to say there in verse, verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews chapter 9. Notice his argument there, he says, But when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the most holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption for us. And in these verses, right all the way to verse 40, the writer makes a series of heartwarming truths, a series of heartwarming declarations concerning the redemptive work of Christ, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he speaks of the permanence of Christ's sacrifice. Notice there in verse number 12 of Hebrews chapter 9, he says there how that he entered Once for all into the holy places. Once for all. In fact, this is his constant theme throughout the book of Hebrews. He talks about how Christ, at the end of the ages, having appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He talks about the finality of Christ's redemptive work. One of the beautiful things, my friends, the marvelous truth concerning our salvation that you and I can rejoice in this salvation of ours is that we have a perfect sacrifice. No, we don't need to have some kind of mass where Christ is sacrificed all over week after week. Christ has been sacrificed once for all, the word of God tells us, the permanence of his sacrifice. And then notice, if you will, secondly, the pricelessness of his sacrifice. We see in verse 12, it was by means of his own blood. It was by means of his own blood. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19 tells us that when he gave of himself, his blood which was shed was as that of a lamb without spot and without blemish the pricelessness of his sacrifice. Verse 14c, we see further evidence of the pricelessness of his sacrifice. He offered himself. Not the, not, he did not offer the blood of animals, of bulls, of goats. He offered himself. He offered his body. He offered his own precious blood. And then we see the potency of his sacrifice, the potency of his sacrifice, the Power of his sacrifice. He says there in verse 12, it procured eternal redemption. Not only did it procure eternal redemption, but notice verse 14d, the D part of verse 14, it purified the conscience. It purified the conscience. Notice, not just pacify the conscience. There are many people, my friends, who might, might have their conscience pacified but not purified. And in salvation, God in Jesus Christ does both. He not only pacifies the conscience, but he purifies the conscience. He purifies the conscience, he tells us, from dead works. Well, what are dead works? You see, dead works are not only deeds that are expressly sinful, that leads to eternal death, that is eternal damnation, but dead works are even religious works, works of self-righteousness, works that bypass the perfect redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is only what we would call works of death, a religion of death. And then notice, finally, the perfection of his sacrifice. He says it was offered without blemish to God. Perfect, without spot, without blemish. And notice verse 14f, to serve the living God. Notice here, that having saved us, what is God's purpose in saving us? What is God's purpose in sending his son to die for our sins, not just that we might escape hell, not just that we might have an insurance ticket against hell, but that we might serve God. We are saved to serve One man puts it like this, salvation is a freedom from the tyranny of sin to lordship of God. Salvation is not a product, a pre-purchase ticket to heaven, or a fire insurance policy, but a relationship of faith, obedience, and service. Well, what can we deduce from our text this morning? And the first thing I think we can take away from this text is this. Number one, that God is desirous of People approaching Him. God is desirous of people approaching Him. That's why our Lord Jesus came. That's why our Lord Jesus died on the cross because you see, in and of ourselves, None of us can approach God outside of Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose going on with the way back to the Old Testament. That's the whole purpose why he set up the tabernacle and put up together all of these regulative principles of worship was so that men might approach him. And the second thing we deduce from this lesson is this, that approaching God is no light matter. Approaching God is no light matter. It is no light matter. Why? Because the God to whom we come is a most holy God. He's a God who cannot tolerate sin, who cannot look upon sin. And here's the point. No one can come to God unless unless his or her sins have first been taken care of. People today, you ask them, are you prepared for heaven? If you should die, where would you spend eternity? And they take it for granted. Everybody takes it for granted. They are going to see the face of Jesus. And yet the truth, my friend, is this. There's no one in his or her natural state who is ready to meet God, who is ready to face God until sins have been taken care of, until sins have been put away through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next lesson we learn, the third lesson we learn, my friends, is that rituals and the externals of religion Are worthless when it comes to putting a person right with God. There are people who would be saved, who desire to be saved, and how they're gonna be saved in their minds is they have to get baptized, they have to take communion. They have to go to church, and they have to do this and that and the other. Let me say, my friends, you could do all of that and still land in hell. Why? Because it is not a works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved that. It is not religion that will save us. It is not rituals that will save us. It is not how many times we pray that will save us. It is Jesus Christ and his finished work that will save us. And the question this morning is Do you know him? Not do you know church, not have you been baptized, but do you know him? Do you know him? as your savior do you know him as the one who died for sins do you know him as the one whose death was sufficient payment for your sins so that with all your good works with all your religiosity with all your good intentions you will never come one inch close to God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus do you know him There are people who, when it comes to the whole matter of salvation, for them, unless it is very elaborate and unless it's very complex, a system, they'll not accept it. You say to the person today, listen, what must I do to be saved? And they give you a whole list of things. When the Bible simply says this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, look to him and be saved. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. It's not going through hopes. It's not going through a season of probation. It's not going through fasting and prayer. It's not going through, you know, various lessons. The moment we look to Christ, the moment a person looks to Christ, the moment a person confesses his or her sins and embraces Christ as Savior, then the work is done. If you're not saved, that's what you need to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Let's pray. We thank your Father for the simplicity of your word. We thank you that under the new covenant, we do not have to go through a complex, elaborate system of rituals, rules, regulations in order to be saved. We are thankful for the perfection and finality of Christ's redemptive work. And we are thankful for the clear promise in your word that any who would call upon him will be saved. We pray that you would make these things real. To those who are within earshot of this message, whether now or after, maybe listening on the internet, Lord, would you work mightily by your Spirit in opening their eyes, to see the simple truth of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.